Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay, and I'll be your host tonight for a great interview with David Lee Garlock. Let me tell you first about how you can listen to Registry Report Radio anytime on just about any device. Just look us up at blogtalkradio.com, and you should see a listing of our recorded shows. You can also click on any link that we post in social media, and that will open up a player which will play our live or recorded show at your convenience. And if you don't have access to the Internet, you can always call in to our studio during our live broadcasts and listen on any phone, whether it be a cellular phone or a landline phone. The number is 563-999-3712. All right, so let me tell you about our guest today. David Lee Garlock is a criminal justice reformer and second chances advocate. On October 29, 1999, when he was just 20 years old, he was arrested for the murder of his abuser. During his 13-plus years in an Alabama prison, David's trajectory changed and he became focused on his own personal betterment and redemption. Upon his release from prison, he became involved with the Equal Justice Initiative and graduated from Eastern University in 2017. He has since gone on to become the program manager for New Person Ministries in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he works with people on the sex offender registry and is a member of the Lancaster County Reentry Management Organization. He speaks regularly at universities and at other venues about criminal justice reform and is anxious to tell his personal story of redemption. So let me introduce you now to David Lee Garlock. How are you doing, David? I'm doing well, sir, and uh, thank you for allowing me to be on the show with you tonight. Well, thank you for being our guest. It's always good to have people with a powerful personal story to tell. As you know, it's probably one of the most effective tools we have for opening the eyes of the public to what's really going on in the criminal justice system. And that kind of brings me to my first question for you. What areas of criminal justice reform do you spend your time most advocating for? It kind of varies within the work that I'm doing right now. As you said in the introduction, is I do a lot of work with men who have committed sex offenses. So I'm involved with Pennsylvania Reentry Council, which is a statewide council that Governor Wolf started in 2017. And so I'm part of that. And one of the parts I am involved with that is as far as those who have committed sex offenses. I'm a member of the 2019 Leading with Conviction Just Leadership USA cohort. And so I'm really learning a lot about policy work in regards to 
meeting legislators. Last month, beginning of April, I went to Washington, D.C. and was able to help with conversation about education, restoring the Pell Grant. And so those are really a lot of the areas I'm passionate about in regards to criminal justice reform. I see. You mentioned the Just Leadership USA program. It's something that I've just recently taken notice of. Is it a program that you would recommend to anyone in criminal justice reform? The program is specifically for men and women who have been formerly incarcerated or who have had family members who have been incarcerated. And they're looking for people who are already advocates and involved with criminal justice reform. And what it does is it enhances the person's ability to advocate. It teaches them how to get more involved, how to how to change the narrative and to get people to listen to their stories and just allows you to change your story to a a story that you can tell in three minutes and have a profound impact on whoever you're talking to. Now, you are the program manager at New Person Ministries. What, What kind of work specifically are you doing there? Well, I do most of the case management and one-on-one work with the men. So we're a Christian reentry home in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And typically, we're one of two non-state-run programs in Pennsylvania that house people who have committed sex offenses. So what I do is I orientate them when they come in. I help them in with resumes. I have gone out to different companies and businesses and have begun conversations with them to try to circumvent the process where I can find organizations and businesses that will hire the men instead of sending them to 20 or 30 employers and having them continually be told no. I want to allow myself to tell the individual when they come in the program, if you want to work construction, I have a colleague that will hire you at this business. And so I send them to them and within two weeks, they'll have a paid job and a job that's where they make good money, and then we help them transition into permanent housing. Now, when you talk to prospective employers about hiring people on the sex offense registry, what is that conversation like? Well, I mean, the the first thing is I ask them before I even have a meeting with them, would they be willing to hire somebody who has committed a sex offense? You know, and once they said yes, that allows me to go in there. And I begin a conversation where I start breaking down the stereotypes as far as people who have committed sex offenses. I talk about the men, talk about their experiences, talk about what they can offer the company. And then I also share some of my story, too, how I am a victim. But now I took the offender's life and now I'm working with men who have committed sex offenses. And it allows them to see a story of grace, the story of. I'm able to work with these men, and I've had this experience that most people couldn't do the work that I do now. And if I can do it, why can't they be able to look at these men in a different light? And it's about really changing the narrative as far as looking at these men not as a sex offender, but as a man who committed a sex offense. And I did see a few weeks ago that you posted some tips for people on the registry on how to go about seeking employment. Would you care to go over a couple of the most important ones that you posted? Really, the main one is really changing the narrative because that's a key in any criminal justice reform or any movement like that. You have to change the narrative. You have to change the labels, you know, because even when I go speak in universities, 
I have this thing where I go in there and I ask the students if they've ever stolen anything in their life. And so it, 95% of the people raise their hand. And so I go around and I start calling each one of them a thief. And I can see their eyes get huge and they start thinking, why are you calling me a thief when I did that thing 15 years ago? But I tell them that because that's how somebody who has committed a crime, who is a felon, as society would say, is viewed. You know, So changing that narrative, allowing these men and women to start calling the guys I work with, men who have committed sex offense, is powerful. It allows them to change the way not only that they view the men, but other men as they come along down the road to be hired in this occupation. You talk a great deal in all of these different venues about your personal path to redemption, and, and obviously it has a lot to do with your faith. Your current job is a job for a faith-based organization, I'm presuming. It's a ministry, right? I guess my yes, question is, were you very religious before you went to prison? And also, do you feel that that sort of path to redemption is as plausible or as possible for someone who doesn't share your faith? It's someone Obviously, Christianity is based on redemption in many ways. It's kind of the bedrock of the religion. But what about somebody who is not a Christian? Do you believe that the same sort of path is available to them? To answer the first question, I grew up in the church, so I really knew what to say and how to say it. But really, when the abuse was happening, I actually was an individual who wore like five different masks. So I wore one mask when I was at church. I wore one mask when I was at school. I wore another mask when I was at around my family. So I really didn't know who I was. And I mean, I knew the word. I, I could quote scriptures. I could do this and that. But I really didn't have a true understanding or acceptance of God being a loving father until I went to prison or I went until I was locked up in the county jail. It was actually the detective after I had confessed to the crime who was taking me back to the county jail and I was asking what type of sentence was I going to receive because I was 20, year, 20 years old and I was thinking I was going to receive a death penalty or a life without. And he turns to me and he's like, do you believe in God? And I'm thinking, I'm not studying God right now. What about me? But his persistence allowed me to ask for a Bible when I got back to the county jail. And that really changed the whole trajectory as far as my faith walk. Now, to answer the second question, I believe as human beings, we all have the ability to believe in second chances, to believe in redemption. It doesn't matter what type of faith somebody has, that is really at our core and the ability to give second chances. The thing is, we have to understand that it is ours to give. We don't have to give that ability to the next person to have that second chance. And there's a lot of people who hold animosity, who hold hatred, who hold hurt, and don't offer that second chance to somebody. I see. I've got a million questions for you, but I know Dwayne wants to jump in and get a few questions in before we come back to a sort of a more of a roundtable format. So, Dwayne, why don't you take over from here? Well, thank you very much. And welcome to the show, by the way. I was surprised you have Internet. It's Lancaster, PA, right? Yeah. Actually, I live in Coastville. 
I, I don't actually live in Lancaster, but I do have the internet in Lancaster, just so you know. Electricity, you know, the horse is parked outside, all the stereotypes and things, you know, we're coming to go. I but love you do, it's a beautiful country. You do see all the horses and buggy all the time. One Sunday night, we were out in Lancaster in an event, and we passed 50 horses and buggies on our way home. <laughs> it's a traffic jam in, in Lancaster uh, when all the horses <laughs> yep. and buggies are out there. But, yeah, it's beautiful stuff. So, And a beautiful story you have and, and also being a part of this community. Why pick this one? Why there? What is the backstory to that? The backstory is... It was a Friday in March of 2017. I was in the last semester of my senior year in college. I was getting ready to go see the career specialist that day. My wife found this ad on Idealist for a program director of a Christian reentry home. So I was like, cool. So I go in to see the career specialist. She pulls up that the executive director of the program graduated from Eastern University, which is the university I was at, I'm like, wow, there's a connection there. And within the next two months, there were two other connections with Eastern. And I didn't find out until I had the initial phone interview with the executive director that most of the men that we work with have committed sex offenses. And the question he asks is, okay, now I know your past. Are you going to be able to work with these men? And I told him, I'm like, I had friends while I was incarcerated who were people who have committed sex offenses. Like, I don't look at them any differently. Now, when I orientate them and I hear their cases and what they went to prison for, there always is that like little heart gut wrench, you know, because when you hear some of the stories, you feel for the victims, you know. But then I realize that I am looking at this new person. This is a man who says he has faith in God, who has turned his life around. And that's what I have to believe. That's what I stand on. And I'm going to go to bat for them and do everything I can for them to see them succeed. Right. And I share a similar story in that area that it was hard for me to get past the abuse and to try to work in this field. And then all of a sudden I'm in it. And I was just, what has happened? I think everybody has their story and it gives a, a purpose to, I guess, purging it. We're probably just trying to embrace it now and use it as an ally instead of as an enemy. But thank you for doing that. Absolutely. The thing that I love about it is most of the men that I work with are never going to be able to have a conversation with their victim, or if they've committed a crime that is on the internet, they actually don't have a hands-on victim. But working with somebody who is a victim and took the life of their offender I give them an opportunity to find their own healing, to find their own forgiveness, because it's about restorative justice. A lot of times in restorative justice, the offender might not be able to have that contact with their own victim, but they do have contact with a victim where the conversation and dialogue can go on. So I look at it more in that where I'm providing healing for them, too. And you're doing something that probably a lot of people that are listening don't really get is that when I started doing lobbying with state legislatures and then working my way into the federal sector, they're surprised that someone like us is walking in their door to say, here's the problem. There are so many other groups out there that are behind the Me Too movement and so forth, and rightfully so, 
but there's no counterbalance to say, well, wait a minute, this is really stretching it too far. How do you find yourself being received by the politicians and to lobby and so forth for restorative justice and uh, justice reforms? Well, I really haven't been able to lobby too much as far as reforms in regards to the offenses relating to sex offenses. One thing that we're going to be doing in the park meetings is try to find out what we can do in regards to legislative changes we can make probably going against SORNA. One of the ladies that's going to be our meeting on the 29th is Teresa Robertson, who is involved with PORSAW, which is Pennsylvania's part of NORSAW. So it's going to be definitely great to have her at the table where she could bring some more education to all the people who are involved with the Pennsylvania Reentry Council. And the reason I brought that up is You've done some fantastic work as far as getting the message out and really advocating for Pell Grants and so forth. And to me, that is lobbying. It can be defined any other way, but you've done some outstanding work in that field and that sector to bring it to light. How do you think they had the reception as far as the politicians when they heard you speak about bringing the Pell Grant? Did you find it to be rewarding, comforting, and listening or a lot of knocking on doors? I mean, for for me personally, I found it very rewarding and they were very receptive. And it's kind of like Michael was saying, you know, when you're able to have that story and you're able to get their attention and you grasp them, they feel like this is something that they have to weigh in on because it's actually in front of them. I was telling a story of somebody else. It wouldn't affect them as much as, hey, I'm in front of you. This is my story. So I mean, I really want to do the same type of thing here in Pennsylvania when it comes to going against the registry and the other laws that are coming out. And I mean, I'd love to do it on a national level, too, because most of the time you have people like Lauren Book down in Florida who use their platform to make laws harder and to allow those chains that are already tight around somebody's wrist to be tighter. I want to be able to come around and help loosen those chains or take the chains off totally. Yes, I agree. When I think of people like Lauren Book, and she has a story, but I also try to imagine that I think she does a lot with other movements to ride the coattails on that to get her persuasive argument of legislative prejudice. But Uh, You're right. It's getting out that message and being in front of lawmakers or contacting them and bringing the phone off the hook until they just say, hey, we got a lot of people calling and saying we need to get rid of this instead of the people for it seem to be in droves, but are dying off because it's an easy sell. I often say it's all who you know, but I also want to put in there that it's best to know yourself so that you can advocate for yourself. So tell me about this national thing. (laughs) That's a pretty bold idea. The thing is, when you think about it, there's really not a lot of people who have had my situation or my type of story, you know, and then just being able to use it in a way that's going to be beneficial to those people who are in the registry 
and those people who have been convicted of sex offenses and just being able to help open the door because a lot of times you don't have victims really taking a real big stance for people who are in the registry. And so really it's like one of those things where you have this superpower and it's like, okay, are you going to use it or are you just going to allow it to sit in the closet? So are you suggesting and maybe implying that registry types of situations should not just be a separate issue, they should be inclusive in just all kinds of justice reforms? And what we're seeing is legislation that's separating. Do you think that if we were involved more with the felon program or ex-offender programs instead of branching off to our own because we have our own issues, that would bring national attention? Or is the state's law so convoluted it makes it complicated? I believe if Florida is a perfect example when you went to Amendment 4. When you looked at Amendment 4, everybody was hyping about it was great, it's going to help with felony disenfranchisement, but it still disenfranchised people who had committed murder and right. those who had committed sex offenses. So my belief is all or none. If you want to do criminal justice reform, you cannot say, okay, we're just going to work with the nonviolent folks. Because if you really think about it, the nonviolent offenders are the ones who have the highest recidivism rate. The people who have committed murders and people who have committed sex offenses, their recidivism rates are 15% and below. People that have committed any other crime don't have the restrictions that are uh, Florida or any other offender would have as far as on the registry. It doesn't compare. Exactly. And another thing we have to realize is that, okay, if you want somebody not to recidivate, you have to allow them to be able to get housing that is substantial. You have to allow them to get a job. You have to allow them to be able to reintegrate with their family. And all the registry law does is totally negate all those three areas. You're not allowing them to come out and to become a successful citizen. You're only allowing them to come out and to be this scarlet letter. You're allowing them to come out and be this billboard saying, hey, everybody, look at me. I committed a sex offense. How can anybody right. succeed or do anything beneficial with that type of label on them? I agree with that. Michael, do you think this is kind of like a new Jim Crow era and David is kind of like the Southern Leadership Conference or something that, you know, is trying to strike a, a chord saying, let's, let's work through this, but who's listening? You know, Dwayne, I think about this a lot. We who work in this field of advocacy are constantly having to deal with the intersectionality. There's my, that's my big word for the day. <laughs> between various movements in the criminal justice reform movement, from my discussions with a lot of other advocates and organizers and lobbyists, I've learned that we are most successful when we cooperate with other groups in other areas of criminal justice reform that have mutual goals. For example, all of us have the same goal of reducing crime, reducing sex crimes and recidivism, making our communities safer. That's a goal of the victims' rights movement. That's a goal of the voting rights movement. That's a goal of law enforcement. It's ostensibly the goal of prosecutors and the courts. And there's really no good reason not to cooperate with some of these other groups with 
other primary functions and goals to our mutual benefit. And I've learned from people like Mary Sue Molnar down in Texas and and the folks down in Florida that the successes that they have usually come when a victim's rights group steps up and says, you know what, those guys are right. This registry isn't working. David, are you seeing examples of this intersectionality between these different CJ reform groups? I can talk about what I see as far as with the Pennsylvania Reentry Council. And these are different coalitions throughout the state that come together. And some of them have victim rights. Some of them are DAs and stuff like that. So really, when you're able to come together and you are fighting for the same thing, that's really where it comes in. Now, we look at what you were talking about where, okay, everybody looks at crime. Okay, what what can we do to prevent crime? How can we make our society safer? Okay, how do we curtail mass incarceration? How do we empty our prisons? But then what is left is violent crimes and people on the registry. These are the last two groups of people that are always left out of the conversation. And it's very frustrating because everybody loves criminal justice reform until these two groups of people are talked about. Then people don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Because it's just an emotional hot button, or do you feel that there's a rational reason for this? I think it's it's really an emotional hot button and that there has been so much fear that has been propagated by society, by media. And really, I mean, you could look at Twitter and all the different newspapers where it says, oh, there was a sting and there was 46 people arrested, but only three were people who had committed sex offenses. This was great. We got three of them off the street. It's like, Okay, three out of 46, that's pretty low. And so just portraying people who have committed sex offenses in this way is just so negative. Why aren't you talking about other individuals who have been arrested for parole violations, but you don't read that? Right. I think that politics is the hot button and social what was it? Social justice warriors are pressing the hot button. And then on top of that, Nobody wants to touch it because they have to get reelected. They have to keep their job. If they speak out in support, they're censured. No one's having that conversation on the other side because you're not allowed to have that conversation on the other side. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see where you're coming from as far as that. But we just have to find those politicians who are going to say enough is enough and there, there needs to be changes made here. And that will say, hey, I'm taking a stand for this because... No one else has up to this point, and there needs to be changes. Like Michigan saying that the sex offender registry is unconstitutional. If we have more governors and more officials doing that, then that could definitely help with the movement and get more people interested, more people involved, and more conversation about this and about abolishing the registry and about making changes. I was just going to say, Dwayne, uh, to be fair, that, that wasn't the governor. That was the uh, attorney general of Michigan, yeah, right. Dana, Dana Nessel. Okay. And that kind of brings me to the point I was going to make. And this is a point that was made by Rachel Barco, who was our guest a couple of weeks ago on the show. And her solution to this mess, and it is a mess by any measure or any standard, is to take it out of the hands of the politicians. Because as long as a politician has to get reelected, he's never going to come out in favor 
of protecting the rights of sex offenders. There's just no possible way and that he's going to get reelected with that kind of a platform. And so her solution was take it out of the hands of politicians and make sex offender registry policy something that is done by an independent commission, kind of like the Fed handles the money supply, supposedly independent of the influence of politicians. So that was her 25 words or less solution to how we fix the problem. If I were to ask you, David, what's your 25 words or less solution to how do we fix this mess that we're in with a totally ineffective sex offender registry and unconstitutional to boot, what's your solution? My solution would be to educate parents more to take the registry from being a public registry to a registry just for law enforcement and to take away these residency restrictions that do more harm than good. And that would allow these individuals who have committed sex offenses to reintegrate in a better way where they'd be able to reconnect with families, where they'd be able to live with their families. Do you feel, David, that Having a murder conviction on your record versus someone who has a sex offense on their record, which of those two hypothetical people is being treated more like a social leper in today's society? Definitely the person who has committed the sex offense because all that person has to do is go on to the, like say in Pennsylvania, they could click Megan's Law Pennsylvania and find whoever has committed a sex offense. They probably wouldn't have to do much to find out about me because of all the public speaking I've done, but most people, it would take longer for them to find that. Another thing is, with my case, a lot of people don't think I should have gotten any time because they justify my actions because I was a victim. So that's something else you have to look at. It's like, how does somebody view the nature of the offense? And when I speak to Going back to when I speak to employers, I let them know as far as the umbrella, as far as some people who have committed sex offenses. There's so many different charges, so many different crimes that most of the time when somebody says sex offender, somebody believes it's somebody who has molested a child. But it could be somebody who had a statutory rape charge. So people look at that hierarchy of offenses, too. Right. You mentioned that you were the victim, but I would argue also that many registrants were once victims themselves because, you know, improprieties have happened during childhood or something, and the data is there. Do you think we're missing that as part of the discussion as well? Absolutely, but the the thing that always baffles me is that people, some people don't care. All they look at is the fact that you committed this horrible offense. Right. Right? They don't right. care yep. about the mitigating circumstances. They don't care that some of my, my residents had been molested for 10 years. And they got to thinking that this is how you show love. This is what you do. And that's something I, I talk about, too, is the fact that you have to look at why somebody did something. Okay, does... One of my residents being molested for 10 years justify what they did? Absolutely no. But it allows you to better understand the thought process as far as what 
they were going through when they committed the offense. So would you say that maybe restorative justice needs to come first before uh, justice reforms? Absolutely. I mean, restorative justice, especially dealing with the individuals who have committed sex offenses, that is the key. That is where you're going to get more help. You're going to get that healing. Because if that healing doesn't take place, then that offender is likely to commit other offenses. But if they have that healing, they're able to ask either their victim or another victim questions and then they begin to think about what they did and how they could not offend again that's where the victory is that's where turning the whole dial will happen hey david i have have a question that kind of goes back to something you said earlier about changing the narrative when the people you work with are out looking for employment and talking about what caused them to be on the registry. And you you mentioned turning your story into a three-minute sort of elevator pitch. You didn't use those words, but I know that's what you were kind of hitting on. Can you expand on that a little bit? I know that in my personal case, I've made a conscious decision, but then I'm not out there looking for, for a job. But I've made a conscious decision not to make it about me so I don't have to spend the rest of my life trying to defend the indefensible and talk more about the bigger issues, rather not talk about me. But obviously, someone who's looking for work needs to talk about themselves a little bit. Could you expand on how they can best do that to help themselves move ahead and be successful in finding employment? One of the main things I tell them is, okay, right now you have to be a salesman. You have to go in there and you have to sell yourself. You have to allow them to see you and who you are and why they need to hire you. And so I work with them, you know, we do mock interviews and I help them to convey what happened. Some of the people all help them talk about their own past and then what led them to commit the crime, and then what they did while they were incarcerated to to change their thinking, to better themselves, to improve themselves, and then really talk about what their goals are, what their aspirations, what they want to do. And I let them know that they have to let the potential employer know that what they did does not define them. That is not who they are. That was just a single act or multiple acts depending and that is not who they are today and so that's really the main thing as far as the three-minute elevator speech i know you said that you believe everyone can be redeemed but aren't there psychopaths and sociopaths and truly dangerous people who may never change no matter what is done what do you think needs to happen in regards to those people I still believe that everybody is redeemable. I mean, something like that, if you have somebody that is committing multiple murders, I believe that they should just be incarcerated for the rest of their life, you know, until they show that they're different. I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't believe that it is right or proper to say that this individual has killed one people or multiple people and the way for us to get justice is to take their life because you never know the impact that that person can have on other individuals while they're incarcerated. 
because 96% of people who are in prison right now are getting out. That individual could impact so many people while they are incarcerated. So that's why I don't believe anybody should be murdered by the death penalty. I think Dwayne's got a question for you. Uh, I was actually just listening to what you said, and here's my dilemma. Maybe, Michael, you can weigh in on this one. We have Zoloft, we have SSRIs, we have all this medication to remedy one issue as far as depression, everything. I mean, we can go down the laundry. In fact, people could probably call us and tell us how many drugs are out there. But we hear this incurable situation of crime, and... I just don't understand why there's no preventative medicines, no preventative programs, nothing out there that really addresses the issue, even medically, and they spend all this money on a registry. Can someone kind of weigh in and and steer me back probably, but it's, are we missing something here? Is I want to hear David's opinion on this before I weigh in. Go for it, David. Okay. I really think it all goes back to a heart issue, you know, it goes not into a person's psychology or anything like that. It's really about what a person experiences and really the trauma that person experiences, you know, because they say hurt people hurt people. So one of the things I say is everybody knows the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. So my spin on that is it takes a village to allow a returning citizen to be successful. And so if you have somebody that's coming out of prison who has just experienced hurt and trauma and pain all their life, if they don't receive love, if they don't receive nurture, if they don't receive acceptance, they're going to return to that same lifestyle. But if they're receiving that love, if they're receiving that nurture from their family, their friends, from employers, from a faith community, they're going to begin to believe in themselves and believe that they do not have to return to that negative lifestyle, to that criminal background. And so really, it all begins with how we raise our children and really pouring into the children, having mentors, having them go to faith communities where they're receiving love and nurture and having people speak life into them because a lot of our kids are being told they're never going to amount to anything. You know, I absolutely agree, David. I think a lot of our problem in this area comes from the fact that our focus is in the wrong place. The media and everything you see and hear points to the sex offender registry as the source of all of these problems, when in fact we know that people on the registry account for you know, single digits, maybe 4 or 5% of the sexual assaults that occur in this country. And it doesn't matter. You hear people throw out the statistic, well, most sexual assaults are not even reported, blah, blah, blah. But the, even so... The percentages are the same. Even if the number of assaults were double what they are or five times what they are, we'd still have those same percentages. A very small percent of those assaults could be laid at the feet of people on the registry. The overwhelming majority of those assaults are committed by people who are well-known to the victim and trusted by the victim. And I think we need to... Just just as David said, we need to start educating kids very young in school and at home that, hey, abuse happens. And it usually comes from somebody that you 
care about or you trust or that you know. And it doesn't help to be wary of the boogeyman down the street. It's Uncle Joe that you have to watch out for. And here's what you do if Uncle Joe grabs your butt or something like that. I think that's first and foremost the thing that's got to happen. But I think the other problem is that treatment, going back to what you started with, Dwayne, Treatment means that you you take this mindset that these things can be prevented. And I don't think people in their heart and soul believe that these things can be prevented. I believe that a lot of people just viscerally believe that if you have these thoughts that you must be acting on them. And if you ha- and if you're acting on them once, you must have acted on them a thousand times. And therefore, why are we wasting any time on trying to prevent it? We just need to lock you away. So the whole idea of prevention, and, and we're going to get some, some other guests on who specialize in this, but the whole idea of preventing something like this from happening before it happens is this legal minefield that you have to be crazy to, to wade into. Doctors are required to report somebody who says that they have these urges or attractions. School counselors uh, will immediately right. call the cops when right. you report that, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about doing this or I, I'm, I'm having a hard time resisting these urges. And so you'd have to be crazy to seek help in this current environment because the first impulse of these so-called professionals is to burn you at the stake, not to help you, not to prevent anything from happening. And taking that whole mindset into account, you have to realize that big pharma runs on money. As long as the overwhelming majority of people believe that these things can't be prevented and that there's no profit in seeking a treatment, you're going to have the situation that we're in right now, which is let's just lock them up after the fact and and let's not even talk about preventing these things from happening. Right. And, it, and it's like a shunning situation that I remember from the LGBT community. The similarities are before this registry and so forth, the same thing was happening with gays and lesbians around uh, around America. They were harassed. They were labeled stigma and told they couldn't live here, not in my house. All the other things that we see, probably not as far fetched as uh, restrictions themselves, but they were not allowed to be employed you know, in the military, sure. every everything there. And there was no crime committed, but there was a mental crime uh, sure. that you can change this. And it's, it's kind of, there's no preventative to that. But what I'm getting at is there is no dialogue there within that community. There's no dialogue in this community. There is still this mindset by people that will think the way they think because Something told them this is wrong and it's permanent. That's going to be a hard sell to get to those people. Where do we see that in the next 20 to 30 years? Well, David, where do you see it in the next 20 or 30 years? Where Where do you see this fight going? I mean, just seeing all the different types of individuals who are in the fight and really the way that we have organizations like NARSAL and other national organizations like that. I think that the, there's dialogue out there. There's people who are coming together and wanting to fight together and not just saying we have 
eight different organizations that are fighting this, but we're going to do it on our own. But I mean, really when everybody comes together where we get the victims, we get the offenders, we get family members and we have all this cohesive group of individuals together i think that's where the change happens within the next 10 to 20 years and it's really going to be all about changing the dialogue you know and talking and and making a, a platform as far as the potential that people do have to change from those thought patterns that cause them to offend and, and knowing that okay these are thoughts Thoughts can be controlled. You don't always have to act on the thought. And that's where we have to get counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists not to make those phone calls to the cops saying, okay, this guy had a a sexual arousal towards a minor. We have to lock him up. No, okay, let me send him to somebody who can begin the conversation to walk through the process of, of healing and the process of not acting out on these arousals or these fantasies. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot of education for the general public to explain the idea that every attraction does not equal an action. I mean, I'm attracted to Angelina Jolie, but she's got absolutely nothing to worry about in terms of me stalking her or something like that. I can appreciate someone from afar, and I think there are people of all sorts of lifestyles and paraphilias and kinks or whatever you want to call, you know, urges and attractions that are the same. Just because someone finds someone else attractive doesn't mean you're a rapist or a molester or something like that. Unfortunately, most people don't understand that. And even though they know in their heart of hearts that they're not a threat to somebody else just because they find that person attractive, they don't believe that of someone else. In your work with registrants, do you find a a certain segment of the the people that you work with to be really, really hard to work with? I ask this as somebody who has been through an SOTP program, and I'll be honest with you, there were people in my uh, group that I had to sit through that I literally went home that night going, holy crap, that person probably belongs back in jail. I mean, do you do you see a lot of that? I mean, definitely. I mean, anytime you work with not only just registrants, but you work with anybody coming out of prison, you're going to have that. I think one of the difficulties that I really see are the people who have committed sex offenses who also have mental health issues. And that's really something that is a smaller population, but it's really prevalent out there and it's hard to deal with because you're not only dealing with this person's fantasies and what they desire, you also have to deal with their depression, their bipolar, their schizophrenia, whatever other mental health issues they have. And so you're not just working in one area, you're potentially working in two or three areas. And that's really one place that's kind of frustrating because it seems like you take five steps forward and then you take four back. Yeah. What do you do when you have to work with those folks? I just continue to work with them. I take each victory as a victory, you know, and I try to let them know that when we do have that victory, I 
honor them. I let them know, okay, this is what we did. We did this today, so this is good. Now, tomorrow, let's do something different. And really, when you're able to let them know that they've had victories or that they've had successes, that helps them out a lot. Super. I know Dwayne has one more question for you, David. And that goes into that. Sometimes I think that our correction systems have become the new mental health facilities. When we see people that probably need to be in a system because of bipolar or or some other mental health issue, then we criminalize that, really, in my opinion, for the behaviors, the, uh, the outcomes of it, without treating the actual mental health issue itself. Do you kind of agree with that, or is that kind of where you were going? I totally agree with that because, I mean, when they shut down the asylums, all the people who were in the mental hospitals, they went to two places. One, they went to the streets. The others went to prison. And, I mean, in Alabama, at Psychotropic Pill Call at at night, you have hundreds upon hundreds of people going to get medication. And they don't – they're not seeing a counselor. They're not getting the help that they need. They're just – being doped up to put a Band-Aid over this gushing wound. Yes, yes. You nailed that one. I agree with that. I wanted to thank you, David, for being with us. I've always wanted to talk to you anyhow on the phone. And, you know, I know we chat a little bit briefly through uh, social media. But thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for what you do. And we hope to see you again. Maybe a Narsol conference. Don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I definitely love that. And thank you for allowing me to be on and to share my story and share my passion. Yeah, I definitely agree with Dwayne. You are doing some great things, David, and we've been following you and hoping to get you on the show for some time. So I'm glad we finally got you on board with this episode. Tell our listeners how they can learn a little bit more about what you're doing or get in touch with you if they'd like to. If you want to learn more about our ministry, you can Google it at newpersonministries.org. You can reach me. My work email is dgarlock, N is for as new, P is person, M, ministries at gmail.com. And then if there's anybody out there who would like me to come speak, you can re- reach me at dgarlockspeaker at gmail.com. Awesome. I'm so glad we've gotten you on on the show. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. So thank you, David. And uh, we'll get you on uh, again sometime. And and good luck with uh, what you're doing. Absolutely. And thank you. And I appreciate it. And just keep getting the word out there, y'all. Super. All right. You've been listening to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay. And my co-host today has been Dwayne Daughtry. And we'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.